0: I call this talk, Apologetics for the Scripturally Challenged. This talk is based upon a principle articulated by Archbishop Fulton Sheen. At least I think it was Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Anyway, he said, the Catholic faith is like a lion in a cage. You don't need to defend it. You simply need to open the cage door. That's what I want to do tonight. I want to teach you how to open the cage door. I'm going to give you some techniques or strategies which will enable you to engage in apologetics, which will enable you to open the cage door with pretty much anyone, even if you don't really know the Bible all that well. Now, I just used the term apologetics. Again, apologetics for the scripturally challenged. Apologetics is simply about being able to explain the faith to someone. And the scripturally challenged part, well, We all know who I'm talking about. This talk is aimed specifically at Catholics who are not all that familiar with the Bible. Although, all Catholics are much more familiar with the Bible than they might think they are. After all, the thousands of Masses we have attended in our lives are filled, beginning to end with Scripture. Every prayer and every action in the Mass has its basis in the Word of God. So we actually know Scripture better than we think we do because we have heard it over and over again in the Mass without necessarily realizing that we were hearing Scripture. This talk is also aimed at Catholics who might be fairly familiar with the Bible, but they are not all that confident in their ability to relate to others the teaching of the church from the Bible. And the reason I focus on the Bible or on Scripture is because whenever we as Catholics talk about, talk about our faith with non-Catholic Christians, the number one most frequently asked question is, where is that in the Bible? Or we are told over and over again that this or that teaching of our faith isn't in the Bible. Whether the topic is the Pope, Mary, Confession, Purgatory, the Eucharist, Works, Tradition, it doesn't matter. It always comes back to, where is that in the Bible? These folks don't care what the Pope says, or what the Catechism says, or what Vatican II says. They want to know what the Bible says, period. So if you as a Catholic are not prepared to answer the question, where is that in the Bible, you may not get very far when it comes to a religious dialogue with most Protestants. Well, what if you as a Catholic don't know where it is in the Bible? And what if it isn't in the Bible, at least not directly? The Catholic Church's teaching on the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, for example, are not found directly in the Bible. So what do you do when you're asked, where does it say anything about the Immaculate Conception in the Bible? What do you do? Are you helpless? Should you look for somewhere to hide? Should you say, look, what's that over there? (laughs) And then when they turn, you run in the opposite direction. What do you do? It is my contention that many Catholics today are afraid to discuss their faith with non-Catholic Christians because quite often they do not know how to deal with the question, where is that in the Bible? Many of us have probably had a Baptist or an Evangelical or a Fundamentalist, whoever, someone has probably beaten us over the head with the bible at least once in our lifetimes which may have made us a little gun shy and which has led many catholics to hold the mistaken notion that just about any and every protestant knows the bible better than we do let me tell you they don't they may have more scripture passages memorized than you but memorizing more scripture is not the same thing as knowing the bible better They may read the Bible more than you, which is a good thing, and which we need to emulate from our Protestant brothers and sisters, but that doesn't mean they know it better than you. As Catholics, we have the magisterium of the church as our guide when we open up the Bible. The magisterium, which is the Pope and the bishops in union with the Pope, has the apostolic authority with which to give God's people an authentic interpretation of Scripture. The magisterium has, in essence, laid down the parameters within which we are then free to interpret scripture. Non-Catholic Christians have no such authentic guide for interpreting scripture. They have their own personal fallible interpretations to rely on. They have no boundaries other than their own imagination within which to properly interpret scripture. And let me tell you. There is some outright lunacy going on out there when it comes to folks interpreting the Bible for themselves. Now, as I said, I want to outline some techniques and strategies for you which will help you in dealing with folks who might be able to quote more chapters and verses than you can. I want to outline some techniques and strategies for you which will help you in articulating the faith, in explaining your faith to others, which will help you to open that cage door. But before I do that, let me very quickly go over some basic rules for engaging in apologetics. First, we need to always keep in mind 1 Peter 3.15, which says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared, Scripture tells us. So, how can we always be prepared to make a defense of our faith? Rule number one, pray, pray. Pray. Pray to the Holy Spirit that he give you the courage to share your faith and the wisdom to choose your words carefully and profitably. Rule number two, you don't have to know everything right now. Just learn a little bit more about your faith each and every day. Read scripture. Read the catechism. Read books on or by the saints. Listen to apologetics tapes. Listen to Catholic radio. Learn a little bit at a time. Rule number three, Luke chapter five, verse 10. Do not be afraid. Henceforth, you will be catching men. Jesus said this to Peter, but he's also saying it to us. Will you make mistakes? Will you get into tight spots when you start sharing your faith with others? Of course you will. But Peter made mistakes. He got into tight spots. Yet Jesus told Peter not to be afraid. Why? Because if we are sincere in our desire to share the truth with others, if we are sincere in our desire to share Jesus Christ with others, then Jesus will find a way to make something good come out of even our mistakes. Rule number four, always view a question about your faith or even an attack on your faith as an opportunity. An opportunity to share the truth. Don't get angry. There's no sense in getting angry, even if someone just viciously attacks your faith. Don't get angry. Just stay calm and stay determined to bring light into darkness, to combat error with truth. Number five, don't get frustrated. Quite often Catholics get frustrated by what I call the doctrinal dance. You get asked about purgatory, Mary, the Pope, the sacraments, all in rapid-fire succession. Before you can answer one question, you're asked another. Before you can answer that question, you're asked another. You're halfway through the answer to that question, you're asked another. Don't get frustrated. Just keep gently guiding the discussion back to one topic until you have said all that you want to say. Then move on. Rule number six, very, very important. Never be afraid to say, I don't know, when asked a question about your faith. Don't try to wing it. However, always follow I don't know with, but I will find out and get back to you. And then make sure you find out and get back to them. Okay, these are some rules of engagement. Now I'm going to give you four strategies or tactics or techniques or whatever you want to call them that you can use when engaging in apologetics. You can use them individually, all at the same time, or any combination of them. If you learn these, if you adapt these to your particular situations, if you make these strategies your own, I guarantee you that you will be surprised with what you are able to do in the realm of apologetics and evangelization. These four strategies or techniques are, and I'll go through them, quickly and then we'll discuss each one in depth. Four strategies or techniques are, number one, the ignorant Catholic. Number two, being offensive without being offensive. Number three, it's the principle of the thing. And number four, but that's my interpretation. Now, I'll get into each of these in just a second, but I first wanna mention that these four strategies rest on a two-layered foundation. Two things that these four strategies rest upon and depend upon. And you must not just know these two things, you must have them seared into your minds, hearts, and souls. These two things are, number one, the Bible is a Catholic book. We gave it to the world. It's ours. So you can rest assured that there is nothing Nothing in the Bible that contradicts anything in the Catholic faith. And there is nothing, nothing in the Catholic faith that contradicts anything in the Bible. If you ingrain that into your psyches, then you will have the confidence to go out and evangelize anyone. Part two of the foundation. There is an answer for every intelligible question you receive about the Catholic faith. You might not know the answer but rest assured that there is an answer. You just have to sometimes go looking for it. Again, I'm talking about intelligible questions. There are some questions I've been asked that you know, I just kind of had to shake my head, look at the questioner and just, you know, just stare in wonder as to how that question could have come out of the mouth of a sane human being. You ever experienced that? People, we are standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years worth of folks who have been defending the faith against all comers. You have St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Therese of Lisieux, and thousands more like them on your side. You have Peter, Paul, and Mary on your side. And I'm not talking about the folks that gave us Puff the Magic Dragon. (laughs) You have the holiest people who have ever lived on your side. You have the Scott Hans, Carl Keatings, Tim Staples, Benedict Grishels, and a host of other folks alive today on your side. There are answers to the questions. Sometimes you just have to go looking for them. But rest assured, there are answers to the questions. Now, strategy number one. This was also rule number six that I gave you above. So a little repetition here. This strategy will allow you to talk to anyone about the faith. And again, I call this strategy the ignorant Catholic strategy. All it is is this, never be afraid to say, I don't know, however, Always follow. Always follow. I don't know with, but I will find out and get back to you. Example, where does it mention anything about purgatory in the Bible? You know, that's a good question. And right offhand, I don't know the answer, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to find out. I'm going to get you an answer, and I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Boom! You're out of a potential jam. Don't be afraid to be ignorant, especially if you are ignorant. (laughs) Besides, there are a whole bunch of folks out there being taught that Catholics don't know anything about the Bible. They're being told that if we did know anything about the Bible, we wouldn't be Catholic. Well, take advantage of that. The worst thing you can do is try to wing it. Don't ever wing it. The stakes are too high for you to give it your best guess, just because you don't want to be embarrassed by not knowing the answer to something, especially when there is an answer. Again, sometimes you just have to go looking for it. Or maybe you do already know the answer to the question, but you're not quite sure on one or two details, and you want to get it down a little bit better before you talk to them about this particular subject. No harm in not answering at that moment. No harm in saying, I don't know, but I'll get back to you so that you can come back better prepared. What you have just done by being the ignorant Catholic is that you have performed a tactical retreat from the battlefield. A retreat where you have suffered no losses, but you now have the advantage. The next time you talk to this person about purgatory will be when, where, and how you decide to do it. And you will talk about purgatory or whatever topic with this person again. If you don't, I am coming to see you. (laughs) Once someone questions or even attacks the Catholic faith in front of you, the door has been opened. Do not let that door shut. You go and do your homework. You listen to a tape. You read a book. You talk to your priest. You do internet research, whatever you need to do, and then when you are ready, you get back to that person with further dialogue, with books, with pamphlets, with tapes, with whatever. But do not let that door shut. It could be the next day, the next week, the next month, or six months later, but you get back to that person. You could get back with them in person. You could write a letter, make a phone call, Send an email. You could talk to them yourself or you could give them a tape to listen to or a book to read. That's the beauty of this. You decide when, where, and how. Just remember, I don't know, but I will find out and get back to you. Strategy number two, being offensive without being offensive. In a nutshell, this strategy is about learning to ask questions rather than answer them. Catholics seem to always be on the defensive when it comes to talking about the Bible or about our faith. Where is that in the Bible? Why do you confess your sins to a man rather than straight to God? Why do you believe you can work your way into heaven? Why do you believe the Pope can't commit a sin? Why do you baptize babies? Where is that in the Bible? and on and on and on. We are always answering questions. We are always on the defensive. We need to start asking the questions. We need to take the offensive instead of always being on the defensive. But we don't wanna do it in such a way that we will offend someone or that will cause their defensive walls to go up or that will scare them away from further discussion. Most non-Catholic Christians, and this is anecdotal from my personal experience, Most non-Catholic Christians that I've run into are not prepared to deal with a Catholic who can answer their questions. Again, they've been told Catholics don't know anything about the Bible. So when they do come across one, they generally retreat and wait for a softer target. Or they get offended by what you have to say and refuse to discuss the matter anymore. You ever had that happen? Particularly with a family member. Ever try to evangelize someone in your family? Defensive walls go up and, well, they get to the point where they would rather die than admit that you were right. You could be talking about 1 plus 1 equals 2. They're not going to give in to you over my dead body. Sometimes offending people can't be avoided. After all, truth is offensive to a lot of people. Just look at what happened to truth itself. He offended people that crucified him. Truth can also be very scary to people. However, if you can avoid causing offense, and if you can avoid scaring them away so that they won't come back, then you want to do so. You want to keep them engaged. You want them to come back for more. So how do you be offensive without being offensive? It's very simple. You let them evangelize you. Whenever someone starts coming at me with questions about the Catholic faith or attacks on the faith... I just let them bring it on. I don't start hitting them with Bible verses and so and so. Just let them bring it on. The number one principle in judo, if you're familiar with that martial art, is that you use the opponent's force against them. That's what I try to do. I'll say something like this. Listen, scripture tells me that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that. I want to know the truth. Because to know the truth is to know Jesus Christ. You, Mr. Baptist, Evangelical, Fundamentalist, Methodist, whatever, you are telling me that the Catholic Church is not giving me the truth. Well, I am open to hearing what you have to say about the Catholic Church because I'm searching for truth. I want truth in my life. And if the Catholic Church doesn't have it, then I want to know that. And I am dead serious. It's isn't something I just say, I mean it. Now, you can stop there, but I usually go on further by saying, and if you can prove to me that the Catholic Church is wrong on any of its doctrines, any single one, then I will renounce my faith and I will be fellowshipping and worshipping with you side by side this Sunday at your church. And I mean that when I say it. I'm being absolutely serious. If someone ever convinces me that the church is wrong, then I would leave the church. It wouldn't make any sense to stay. Now, what I don't tell this person I'm talking to is that they I believe they have about as much chance of proving the church wrong on any of its doctrines as they have of proving that one plus one does not equal two. In fact, I think they have a better chance of proving that one plus one does not equal two than they have of proving the church wrong. In other words, they cannot prove the church wrong. Even if they can confuse you, befuddle you, or aggravate you, or twist your arguments around, they cannot now, nor will they ever, be able to prove the Catholic Church wrong. Remember this. There is nothing in the Bible contrary to the Catholic faith, and there is nothing in the Catholic faith contrary to the Bible. So, what have you accomplished by saying these things? by telling them that you are searching for truth and that you are open to hearing their arguments that the church might be wrong. Essentially, you've done three things. You probably have them salivating at the opportunity to save a Catholic from the darkness of Romanism. In other words, you've almost guaranteed that they will engage you in dialogue. They want to save you, which is a good and admirable thing. And many more Catholics should adopt that way of thinking. Number two, you have basically said, teach me, I'm an ignorant Catholic. Overlapping strategy number one. In other words, you have elevated them to the role of teacher and lowered yourself to the role of student. Number three, you have conveyed the feeling that you are willing to hear them out, which you are, and that you're giving them the benefit of the doubt, so to speak. And going back to number two for a second, they're the teacher, you're the student. What does a good student do? Ask questions. And all three of these things, all of these things, lead to one very important result. You have gotten them to lower their defenses. The Trojan horse is inside the city walls. You have made them think that they are on the offense that they are evangelizing you, that they are in control of this dialogue, that they are about to pluck you out of this church, when actually the opposite is true. You are on the offense. You are evangelizing them. You are in control of the dialogue, and you are about to expose them to truths that they may have never considered before. You are about to plant some seeds. You are about to open the cage door. You've also done something else. You've changed the dynamics of the dialogue. It is no longer me versus them, you versus them. It is no longer Catholic versus Baptist or Catholic versus evangelical or anything else like that. You've made this a discussion of what is the truth, which is exactly what that discussion should be about. What is the truth? And you've made it very clear that you want to follow the truth wherever it leads. And you do. And you hope that they are willing to follow the truth wherever it leads. And again, you're not going to broadcast that you know exactly where the truth leads. The Catholic Church. You're going to let them find that out on their own. With just a little guidance from you and through the workings of the Holy Spirit. Remember, your mission is to plant seeds. Your mission is to open the cage door. It is the Holy Spirit that changes the hearts and minds of men. Okay, what does all this mean in terms of hands-on, real-life situations? How do I put into effect the strategy of being offensive without being offensive? Well, we just talked about step number one of this strategy, which is to tell whoever you're talking to that you are searching for the truth, And you are open to hearing whatever it is they have to say to you. Step number two is this. Ask questions. Ask questions. Stop answering questions all the time and start asking them. Answer questions with questions. Just like Jesus did. Perfect role model. Is it lawful to pay taxes, Jesus was asked? Whose head is on the coin, Jesus answered. Question with a question. An example. Why do you Catholics believe in confessing your sins to a priest, a mere man, instead of going straight to God? Catholic response, well, you know the Bible probably better than I do, since I'm an ignorant Catholic. You don't have to say that. So tell me, does it say somewhere in the Bible that we shouldn't confess our sins to a man? Does it say somewhere in the Bible that we should confess our, God, our sins to God alone? Let them show you the direct scriptural prohibition against a particular Catholic teaching. They cannot do it. And as your knowledge of scripture increases, you could add something like, well, if we're not supposed to confess our sins to men, then I, I'm a little confused here. You know, the ignorant Catholic. Catholic. Doesn't James 5.16 tell us that we are to confess our sins to one another, to other men? And in Matthew 9, verse 8, it says that God gave the authority on earth to forgive sins to men. Can you explain those passages to me, please? Why would God give the authority on earth to forgive sins to men If we're supposed to confess our sins to God alone and then take them to Matthew 9 verse 8, read it to them and say, what does that mean? Another example you could ask someone is this, you know, in my church, in the Catholic church, we believe that both faith and works play a role in one's salvation. But I I think you guys in your church, I, I think you believe in salvation by faith alone, right? Most will say yes. Where in the Bible does it say we're saved by faith alone? And then they will take you to one of several passages and say, see, here it is. They might take you to John 3.16. God sent his only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not die. Or they might take you to Romans 3.28. We are saved by faith. See, right there, faith alone. The key here is to actually read what they put in front of you and match what you're reading with what they are saying. You know what? they don't match most of the time. And they don't match every time when it's a verse that proves the Catholic Church wrong. What came out of his mouth was faith alone. What it says in the book is faith. Catholics believe we are saved by faith, just as it says in the Bible. And we believe that we are saved by believing Jesus, just like it says in the Bible. But the Bible doesn't say faith alone. And the Bible doesn't say believing alone. Remember, whatever answer they give you, whatever it is they say to prove the church wrong, don't accept it. Because any non-Catholic doctrine that they are trying to justify from Scripture cannot be justified from Scripture. Not when Scripture is interpreted in context. Pay close attention to what they say and pay close attention to what the Bible says. I guarantee you the two will not match. And even if it's just a word off, like faith versus faith alone, that one word can make a universe of difference. Be aware of that. This is where it is necessary to have it ingrained in you that there is nothing in the Bible that is contrary to the Catholic faith. Nothing. Because when you ask your questions, you will get hit with Bible verse after Bible verse. And a good habit to adopt is this. Whenever someone puts a Bible verse in front of you that proves the Catholic Church is wrong, you just slam your hand on that Bible and you say, Amen! I believe that. As a Catholic, I believe 100% of the Bible. 100%. However... I do not necessarily agree with your fallible interpretation of that passage. As I just said, either what they're saying doesn't actually match what the Bible says, or they are taking the verses out of context. You have to pay close attention to the answers you get to your questions. After one or two questions, the answers start to not make a whole lot of sense. But you have to be paying attention so that you can point out the inconsistencies. With just one or two questions, you can cause some folks some major consistency problems. I have a list of 12 questions for Protestants that I'll share with you in a few minutes to show you what I'm talking about. And don't let them off the hook with a so-so answer. And don't accept a scripture quote, like I said, that is kind of like what it says in the Bible. Keep asking your question until they give you a very good answer, if they can. So, no matter what passage they put in front of you to answer your questions and to prove that the Catholic Church is wrong, you can rest assured that, number one, either that passage doesn't actually say what they're trying to make it say. In other words, what's coming out of their mouth doesn't actually match up with what's written on the page. Or, number two, they're taking that passage out of context. Remember that. This is very important. When you get to your second or third question on the same topic, I guarantee you that the responses you receive will start contradicting themselves. But always keep in mind strategy number one, the ignorant Catholic. If you get turned around, if you get confused, if you feel like you've gotten in over your head, you simply say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And that's a very good point. I'm gonna to have to think about that and pray about it and get back to you. And then you do your research and you get back to them. By asking questions of your teacher, you're simply being a good student, a curious student. But you are in fact the one doing the evangelizing. You are through your questions, through your questions, hopefully leading this person to examine their position a little more carefully. You want them to examine their position. Protestant theology, where it differs from Catholic theology, is razor thin. There is no depth to it, and it does not hold up well under scrutiny. The problem is many folks just accept it at the surface and never try to dive down under. That's what you should be attempting to do through your questions. Get these folks to examine exactly what it is they believe and why. Now, as with anything, it takes practice. But this is something that all Catholics can be doing and should be doing. Make the other guy defend their position just as much or more than he or she makes you defend your position. You should be asking more questions than you're answering. One thing I advise folks to do is when you evangelize somebody, when you talk to somebody, let's say you're talking about confession. You give them a tape. You come back to them with a tape on confession. There's a really good one back there. <laughs> you can hand them a John Martinoni tape on confession. Or Scott Hahn or Tim Staples. And what you do, you don't say, listen to this. These guys are going to prove you wrong. You say, listen, I hear what you're saying about confession in the Bible and the church. I hear it. I'm thinking about it. Would you do me a favor? I, I need your opinion on this. I listened to this tape by this guy. And he made a lot of sense. And he's using the Bible a lot. Would you listen to this tape for me and give me your opinion on it? Could you tell me where he's wrong? Tell me where he got it wrong. What have you done? You've lowered their defenses. Because it's not you and them anymore. It's them and this guy. <laughs> and you're kind of taking, you know, giving them the benefit of that. You're saying, tell me where he's wrong. What have you done? You got them to listen to Scott Hahn. I I firmly believe if Scott Hahn could talk to every single person in this country for three or four hours, that about we'd have about 250 million Catholics. But he can't. But you can. And he can through you. Now, this particular technique I've been discussing is useful also in taking the first step when wanting to engage in a discussion. For example, let's say you have a family member who has left the faith and become a member of, let's say, a non-denominational church. And you've wanted to start a discussion with them, but you just don't know how because all of this has been a source of tension in the family. Well, go up to them and say something like, and again, these are my words. You, use, you adapt these to your situation with your words. Tell them you've been thinking a lot lately about truth, about God, about life. And you were just wondering about all the different Christian faiths, believing different things. And would they mind if you asked them a question or two? About their church. People generally love to tell you about their church. Then, when given the green light, you could ask, for example, well, what do you believe about salvation? By faith alone. Okay, well, where is, where is that in the Bible? Can you show me the verse? John 3.16, it believes, okay, but that doesn't say alone. I, 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 I explain it. That's how you get into it. You ask them questions. You earnestly desire to know what they believe because you cannot counter or, or, or form an argument for what they believe if you don't know what they believe. So you truly want to know. It's not just a, a gimmick. Remember, again, though, you're the ignorant Catholic wanting truth and you need help in your search. And remember, not only is the Bible on the Catholic side, but logic is as well. So ask your questions Keep looking for the inconsistencies in the answers. Use logic. And very importantly, listen carefully to the answers you get once you start asking the questions. Again, I guarantee you, the answers you get to your second round of questions will, in one or more ways, contradict the answers you got to your first round of questions. And when that happens, again, politely draw them back to what they had previously said using their own words Help them to see the logical and scriptural inconsistencies in their position. Be offensive without being offensive. Two more strategies real quick. Then we'll get into those questions for Protestants I mentioned. Strategy number three. It's the principle of the thing. Learn how to establish Catholic principles from Scripture. And then use these principles to build your case for the faith. For example, you might be asked, Where in the Bible does it say anything about Mary being assumed body and soul into heaven? Well, you know, it doesn't. But let's take a look at that. Is a person being assumed body and soul into heaven going against what the scripture teaches? Well, no, actually it's not. Because we see from Genesis 5 and Hebrews 11 that Enoch was apparently assumed body and soul into heaven. Elijah in 2 Kings 2 is assumed body and soul into heaven. The two witnesses from Revelation chapter 11 are assumed body and soul into heaven. So it is very obvious that a person being assumed body and soul into heaven is not contrary to scripture. Every Christian based on the Bible has to agree on that. You have then established a Catholic principle. You haven't conclusively proven that Mary was assumed into heaven, but you have made the first step in that direction you've put a chink in the anti-assumption armor. If Mary was assumed into heaven, it would not be counter to scripture. You've established that Catholic principle. Now, if someone says, well, the Bible nowhere says she was assumed into heaven. Well, you can simply reply, well, we just established the Catholic principle that bodily assumption into heaven is not contrary to the Bible. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that Mary was not Assumed into heaven. So why can't I believe that? Another example. Purgatory. Nowhere is purgatory mentioned in the Bible. True. But let's look at 2 Samuel 12 verses 13 to 18. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He had committed adultery and murder basically. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. In other words, David was forgiven of his sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child that is born to you shall die. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became sick. On the seventh day, the child died. Principle number one. There is punishment for sin even after one has received forgiveness. Catholic principle number one from the scripture. Revelation 21 verse 27. But nothing unclean shall enter it. They're talking about the new Jerusalem, heaven. Catholic principle number two from the Bible. Nothing unclean, nothing with the stain of sin will enter heaven. Something with the stain of sin is, is not clean. Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits, the spirits... Of just men made perfect. The spirits of just men made perfect. Catholic principle number three from the Bible. There is a way, a process, through which the spirits of just men are made perfect. First Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15. Each man's work will become manifest. For the day, judgment day, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved. But only as through fire. Where is this place? That a man, after he dies, suffers loss as through fire, but is still saved. Is it hell? No, you don't get out of hell. Is it heaven? No, you don't suffer loss in heaven as through fire. Hmm, logic tells you there must be somewhere else. Catholic principle number four from the Bible, there is a place other than heaven or hell. Reviewing the Catholic principles we've just established from Scripture, number one, there is punishment for sin even after receiving forgiveness. Number two, nothing unclean, nothing with the stain of sin will enter heaven. Number three, there is a way, a process through which the spirits of just men are made perfect. And number four, there is a place other than heaven or hell. All principles backed up by Scripture, which when put together, make a very good case for purgatory. You can do this with pretty much any Catholic teaching. Now, this does require a little more knowledge of scripture, but it is not anything that is beyond the reach of anyone here right now. And there are plenty of resources out there that can help you in doing things like this. Just remember, when you read the Bible, pay attention to what you're reading. Is there a Catholic principle that you can take away, that you can draw from the verses or the chapters you're reading? Remember, it's the principle of the thing. Last strategy, number four. But that's my interpretation. This is your ace in the hole. When you start using strategies number two and three above, When you start asking questions about scripture passages and you start asking questions about Protestant theology and when you start pulling Catholic principles out of scripture, you will inevitably be hit with, wait a minute, that's not a sound interpretation you're making. Or you might be told that you're not interpreting scripture with scripture, or you'll be told that you don't have the proper understanding of the Greek behind the text or any one of a number of other ways to tell you that basically your interpretation Is wrong. That's when you ask this question. Wait a minute. Don't you believe that as Christians we should go by the Bible alone? And pretty much most non-Catholic Christians will say absolutely. Well, don't you also believe that each person has the right to read and interpret scriptures for themselves as they feel guided by the Holy Spirit? And they will say yes. Of course they believe that. Then you respond with... Well, that's my interpretation. Are you saying that I can't interpret the scripture as the Holy Spirit is guiding me to do? Are you saying that your interpretation of scripture is better than my interpretation of scripture? How can you say that if everyone has the right to interpret scripture for themselves? Do you really believe that or not? Or do you just mean that only those folks who agree with you have the right to interpret scripture? You have just made a valid, logically consistent point. If they truly believe that we go by the Bible alone and that each individual has the right to interpret the Bible as they see fit, then the best, the best they can hope to do against you, in a sense, is a tie. (laughs) I want you to understand this, because this should give you tremendous confidence when talking to any non-Catholic Christian. Ultimately... In any disagreement between Catholic theology and Protestant theology, when individuals are discussing this, the best the Protestant can do is to say that they believe their fallible interpretation is better than your fallible interpretation. But they cannot say that your interpretation is wrong. That would be going against one of their core beliefs. The belief that every individual has the right to interpret scripture for themselves. They have to. They have to believe that your interpretation is a valid interpretation, even if they disagree with it. After all, again, all believers have the right to interpret scripture for themselves. If they tell you that your interpretation is not valid, then they are being hypocritical. Now, as a Catholic, I believe that each individual has the right to read and interpret scripture also, but that any Valid interpretation has to be within the parameters laid down by the church founded by Jesus Christ. So the worst, the worst that I can do, as long as I stick to what the church teaches, the worst I can do, in a sense, when discussing theological differences with a Protestant, is a tie. If I keep my wits about me... I cannot lose a theological debate with a non-Catholic. I can't. Neither can you. Remember, you have the right, by their theology, to your interpretation. The best they can hope for is a tie. The worst I can do is a tie. Now, I hope these things have made sense. It might take a little pondering to fully realize what I've been saying here, but then again, it might not. Once again, I'm from Alabama, so all of you are smarter than me. Unless, of course, there's somebody here from Mississippi. That's just a joke. Any Mississippi people, they know what I'm talking about. I just hope that something in these four strategies that I've presented will prove helpful and useful to you in your evangelization efforts. That something in what I've been saying will help you to open the cage door. Now, I want to continue with what I mentioned above when I was talking about learning to ask questions. I want to give you some questions that you can begin asking folks. These are 12 questions to ask Protestants, to ask a Protestant. It's actually more than 12 because there are questions and then follow-up questions, but it's basically 12 main questions. Some of them may not ring a bell with you, but others will. But all of them go to major, major beliefs of many, many Protestants. And what I want you to do is to pay attention to how, with just one or two questions, you can cause some folks some serious problems with consistency. Question number one. If everything that we need to know as Christians is, is in the Bible, where in the Bible does it give us the list of books that are supposed to be in the Bible? How do we know all of those books that are in the Bible? Because the Bible didn't just fall from the sky looking like this. All these different books, a whole bunch of different books, all claiming to be Scripture, inspired word of God. Some books in there that are in there now that people were saying shouldn't be in there because they weren't the inspired word of God. So if the Bible is our sole rule of faith, then there should be a list in the Bible of the books that are supposed to be in the Bible. Uh-uh. Logical contradiction. There is no list in the Bible. So there's an authority outside of the Bible, whatever that authority is. That decided which books should be in the Bible. Question number two. If we are saved by faith alone. Then we don't need to love anyone, do we? Even God. In order to be saved. Right? That's a logical question to ask someone who believes in salvation by faith alone. And you've just put them in a difficult position. If we do indeed need to love in order to be saved then we are not saved by faith alone, are we? We are saved by faith and love, which Catholics refer to as faith working through love, which you will find in Galatians 5, verse 6. If we do not need love in order to be saved, then they are saying you can get to heaven without loving God, without loving your fellow man. A pretty ridiculous position to take. Also, If it is faith alone without love, then how come 1 Corinthians 13 verse 13 says that love is greater than faith? Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is faith? No, love. Shouldn't it be the other way around? After all, if salvation is the greatest thing we can achieve, and it is by faith alone that we achieve salvation... Then faith should be greater than love. We don't need love to be saved. But the Bible says differently. Question three. If you have faith but not works, can your faith save you? Question straight out of the Bible. If they answer yes, your faith can save you without works. Then they contradict scripture. James chapter 2 verses 14 to 17. If they agree with scripture and answer no. Then they agree that it's not faith alone that saves us. And remember. If they say that James is talking about a different kind of faith, which will be what a lot of people will say. James and Paul talk about different faiths. It's not the same thing. What do you do? You ask a question. Oh, really? Where does it say that? And pay careful attention to what they say because it's not going to match up with the Bible. Question four, if salvation by faith alone is the most central and most important Christian doctrine, then why does the phrase faith alone or faith only appear just once in all of Scripture? And that is to say that we are not justified or saved by faith alone, which is James chapter 2, verse 24. Question five. If God alone can forgive sins, and we are to confess our sins only to God and not to men, then why does Matthew say that God gave the authority on earth to forgive sins to men, plural, not just to a man, Jesus Christ? Matthew 9, verses 6 to 8. And why does James tell us to confess our sins to one another, not just to God alone? James 5, verse 16. And why did Jesus give His disciples the power to forgive or retain sins? John 20 verse 23. Question 6. Is whether or not we have faith God's sole criteria for judging us worthy of salvation? If the answer is no, that's not God's sole criteria, then it is not salvation by faith alone, is it? If the answer is yes, that is the sole criteria for being judged worthy of salvation, whether or not you have faith. If the answer is yes to that question, then why does every passage in the New Testament that speaks of judgment say that we will be judged by our works, our deeds, by what we have done? For example, Matthew 24, John 15, Romans chapter 2, Revelation chapter 20, and many, many more. Why don't they say we will be judged by faith? Question seven, for a Christian, what is the pillar and ground or the pillar and foundation of the truth? In other words, the upholder and foundation of the truth, a pillar holds things up. Is it the Bible? If they say, yes, absolutely, it's the Bible, then they are disagreeing with the Bible, which says it is the church that is the pillar and ground of truth. First Timothy chapter three, verse 15 If they say, no, it's not the Bible, it is indeed the church, then how can you believe the Bible alone is the sole rule of faith when it is the church that is the upholder and foundation of the truth? Shouldn't the church have a role in all that? Question number eight. Is God's revelation to men ongoing, or did it end with the death of the last apostle? Every Christian denomination that I've come across so far believes that God's revelation basically ended with the death of the last apostle. If they say that, yes, it did end with the death of the last apostle, then you ask, where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't. So you ask, well, isn't that a non-biblical tradition? Question nine. Jesus tells us in John 6, verse 27, and this is a very important passage, you need to memorize it, John 6, verse 27, to labor. This is a commandment from God to labor for the food that leads to eternal life. That doesn't sound like faith alone, does it? Labor for the food that leads to eternal life, which he will give us. In John 6, verse 55, Jesus tells us that his flesh is real food. And in verse 54, he says that whoever eats his flesh, this food, has eternal life. What does Jesus mean when he tells us to labor for the food that will lead to eternal life. And what does he mean that by eating this food, eating his flesh, we will have eternal life? Aren't those things doing something? Don't they connote action, not just faithing? Even if Jesus is speaking symbolically when he's talking about eating his flesh, isn't he still telling us that if we do something, we will have eternal life? Isn't that suggestive of faith and works? And doesn't he again, in fact, command us to labor for the food that leads to eternal life? Why does he do that? All valid questions to ask. Question 10. Christ redeemed all men with his death on the cross. In other words, he paid the price for all men's sins. Yet not all men are saved. What is the difference between those who are merely redeemed, big circle, and the subset of those little circle within the big circle who are redeemed and saved. What's the difference between the redeemed and unsaved and the redeemed and saved? Is it something Jesus did or is it something each individual did? If it's something Jesus did, then why doesn't he do the same thing for all men? After all, scripture says he desires that all men be saved. First Timothy 2 verse 4. If it's something the individual believer did, then isn't that a work? The point here is that the believer has to do something in order to be saved. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever, Jesus did the same thing for both of us. He died on the cross. The difference is that the believer did something and the unbeliever didn't do something. The believer believed by the grace of God, but he had to cooperate with that grace. He had to do something or else he would not have been saved. Faith alone? Question 11. Do we have to forgive others in order to have our sins forgiven by God? If they say yes, then we're not saved by faith alone. After all, we cannot be saved if our sins are not forgiven by God. And if we cannot have our sins forgiven by God if we do not forgive others then we cannot be saved. Therefore, we are saved by faith and at least one work, the act of forgiving others of their sins against us. If they say, no, we don't have to forgive others in order to have our sins forgiven, then they are going directly against what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 14, the Our Father. Question 12, and this is a series of questions, but question 12 basically is, Where in scripture does it say the Catholic is borrowing the question that we're usually hit with? Where in the Bible does it say scripture alone is the sole rule of faith for Christians? Where in the Bible does it say we are saved or justified by faith alone? Where in the Bible does it say baptism is a symbolic gesture that the already saved believer makes to show his commitment to God? Where in the Bible does it say that every individual has the right to interpret every single passage of Scripture on their own in order to determine by their own authority what is true doctrine and what is false doctrine. Where in Scripture does it say that you're to have altar calls? Where in Scripture does it say that you're to meet at your church every Wednesday night? Where in Scripture does it say that it is okay to disagree on the non-essential doctrines as long as you agree on the essential doctrines? Where in the Bible does it say that there is such a thing as a non-essential doctrine, a non-essential part of the word of God? The answer to all of these last questions is it's not. It's not in the Bible. None of those things are in Scripture. Don't accept anything but a Scripture passage that states these things explicitly. And you won't get it because it's not there. And again, listen to the answers to all of these questions. Listen for the inconsistencies and make sure you ask questions about those inconsistencies. Now, again, I hope that you have gotten at least something, maybe one or two things, out of all of this that will will help you to go out from here and to plant the seeds of truth with friends, family, co-workers, and whoever else you come across. I hope you've gotten something that will help you to open the cage door. Thank you. For more information or to obtain a copy of this talk, please check out the Bible Christian Society website at www.biblechristiansociety.com or send a letter to the Bible Christian Society, P.O. Box 424, Pleasant Grove, Alabama, 35127. Thank you and may God bless you.